Ah, oh, good morning. I literally just want to come around to each person, just say hello, how are you? Um, not shake hands or hug necks, because you know we can't do that. But I really am I'm very honored, very glad that you're here with us today. Happy Father's Day to all the dads out there. Steve and David, congratulations on your gift this morning. I'm proud of you guys for coming in strong and winning that. It was probably the women in your life that posted your picture, but no big deal, you get the prize. Um, when I was a kid, um, has anybody seen this book before? It's called Hobbledy Hoy. I shared it with the Rolling Hills staff just this past week. Hobbledy Hoy, any, any, any hand raises out there? You've never seen this before in your life. Most of the people that I encounter have never heard of this. Um, this is a book that one of my cousins had when we were kids and they lived in Atlanta and we would go stay with them um, a little bit each summer and we would always play this game. There are about a thousand different random words in here accompanied by a thousand different random definitions. And I say right now, fully understanding um, that whoa, Nick Allen and his cousins were really nerdy, if that's what they did in the summer. We did, we played this game. So what happens is, um, whenever it's your turn, you pick out a word and you tell everybody what that word is, and then everybody proceeds to write down whatever made up definition they can come up with for that word. Some of you think, oh, that's like balderdash, the board game, it is, but it isn't. So everybody would come up with a different definition for the word, and then the person would collect all those definitions, and they would read all of the made up definitions out loud with the real definition mixed in there somewhere. And then we would all proceed to vote on who or which definition you thought was the exact right one. I have this younger cousin and he would always write some sort of definition that had to do with like literal bathroom humor. And so we always knew exactly what was his and never wanted to vote for it. But there are all these kind of crazy made up definitions and we would laugh and get carried away. And if someone voted for your definition, then you got a point. And that's clearly one of the paths that you could take to winning the game. Or if you were able to correctly identify the right definition from amidst all the other definitions, then you would also get a point for that. And then you would eventually collectively find out who won. The goal of the game was to write a definition that would get other people to think that it was the right one. Hence the world that we live in. Because everybody's out there coming up with their definition of the word love. Hey, grab into my circle and join me over here because this is what real love is. The world is out there telling us what the definition of the word hate is. So you guys just all join me. I'm gonna come up with a definition and then we're gonna all gravitate around that. And I bet I can get you to believe in what my definition of the word hate is or the word justice or the word forgiveness or the word freedom. We can all come up with whatever definitions we want to for the really hard, difficult words in life. How about mercy? How about grace? How about truth, but ultimately there is a real definition. And at the end of the day, the goal isn't to get you to all navigate to what my definitions of those words are. The goal at the end of the day is for us together to pursue what the correct definition of any of those words is, because there's a right one. And collectively as a community of faith, we wanna find out what that is and then live our lives according to it. This is gonna be a place of truth. And the rest of the world is making up stuff left and right as we go along. Instead of getting trapped and tempted to believe all of that, we're gonna pursue what truth says and align our lives with it. I'll give you a word this morning. Uh, maybe it's from the book, maybe not. You have to kind of wait and play and find out. How about this, playthenu? Playthenu. You guys come up with whatever definition you want to this morning for the word playthenu. And at some point I'll, I'll tell you what it means. The word hobbledy-hoy actually means clumsy and awkward. Um, so I think it's a fitting game for the season of life that we're in. Thank you for enduring with us all the things that are now clumsy about church. When you kind of go in for that side hug and you realize that you're not supposed to do that, so you kind of like shift it real quick and you make it an elbow touch, that's just strange. 
or the idea that we're socially distancing and you come in and you're sitting up to somebody, you're like, oh, there's somebody down there from me four seats away. We get all the clumsy, difficult, awkward things that there are about this season. Thank you for putting up with those um, so that we can A, keep one another safe and respect each other's boundaries, but then also still be in a, a spot where we can gather together and, and know that something about our togetherness is ultimately for our good. Playfano, you got some definitions for it? Keep them coming. So the word of God that we received this week comes from the book of Acts chapter nine, because we're continuing to dive into a series where we talk about the apostle Paul started out as the uh, pursuer of Christians named Saul, who was out to kill them. We read last week in chapter nine of the book of Acts, verse one, which clearly defined who he was. It says, meanwhile, while everything else in the world is happening, while Christians are being hunted down and killed and pursued, and while the church is still growing in faith, meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciple. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters in the synagogue to Damascus that he found any who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Meanwhile, Saul was breathing out murderous threats. And, and yet we know what happened from last week's passage of scripture that we continued on, that he was on the road to Damascus to arrest those believers. And he was blinded by a light and transformed by the goodness of Jesus Christ and brought in to be a disciple all himself. And what we sit back and look at that is, wow, in the middle of breathing murderous threats, Paul became a disciple of Jesus. And, and the challenge with that is that that kind of life change, it's in your notes this morning if you're following along with your worship guide, which is available to you on an app on the phone or if you're just writing down what you think might be good things today. Life change doesn't limit the recipient. There's no limit to it. Who can receive God's grace? Who can receive God's love? Who can be transformed by the Holy Spirit of God into a child of God, into a representative of his? There is no limit. And if I were doing scripture, if I were coming up with my own definitions of what truth are in life, I would probably put some boundaries on it and determine, predetermine for God, free of charge, Holy Father, let me just tell you, these are the kind of people I think you ought to go after. And these are the kind of people that are outside the bounds of your love and your forgiveness and your perfection and your attention. You do that too. We, we, we all have some people that we just think, wow, I mean, God's love is big, but whew, not quite that big. God's forgiveness is real, but you gotta draw the line somewhere, right? When the truth is, is that the kind of life change that God wants to do, the kind of love that he wants to extend really does know no limits. Romans 5, 8 says that God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not after we got it right, not after a few clumsy attempts to do a little bit better in life, not after we raised our hand and said, I need help, life is so bad, please come out. Like Jesus didn't wait for us to recognize all that was wrong about us before he was willing to die for us. That's the good news. And that while we were still sinners, while we were still actively rejecting the goodness of God, he sent his own son to die in our place. That's the best part of salvation. And the fact that the life change that God wants to extend to us doesn't know a limit or a bounds as to who might ever be worthy of it because the challenge is that none of us are ever worthy of it. Saul's life as a persecutor and a pursuer and a killer of Christ followers is evidence of the fact that nobody, none of you and none of the outside of this room used in the world are outside the bounds of God's love and his forgiveness and his usefulness in their life. You know, the full benefits of salvation 
the goodness that God wants to give to us available in a moment, in an instant. The full benefits of a life with Christ are available in an instant, but the accompanying life change is a lifelong process. It's evidenced for us by the thief on the cross. You know, Jesus hanging on a cross in between two thieves. One of them is hurling insults and ridicules at him. And the other one is getting onto that guy and saying, hey, listen to him because he knows. And this guy is literally extending his faith in Jesus and says, Jesus, when you enter your forever kingdom, please remember me. And Jesus looks at him in that moment and says, hey, today, like this day, because FYI, I want to let you know a secret. You're about to die. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Not after you've lived a good life for 30 years, not after you've served Jesus for 40 years, not after you memorized all the possible words that you could in the daily quiet time that you're going to have once I send my Holy Spirit into your life to challenge and change who you are. But today, this moment, you're going to receive the full list benefits of salvation in your life because what we get from Jesus is available to us in an instant. But the sanctification, the life change, it's a lifelong process. So we start today in Acts chapter nine, beginning in verse 20. It says, Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. You remember he found that guy, Ananias, and he was sitting there and Ananias like put his hands on his eyes and the scales fell down and he was able to see again. So Saul spent several days with disciples in Damascus at once. Tell me your Bible translations say immediately. It's literally like in the next moment, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the son of God. And the synagogue part is important. Because if you go down further into Saul's life and you get to hear more of his testimony and where he came from, you know, he studied under a priest named Gamaliel, a, a rabbi who was really, really popular and really, really famous at the time. He's mentioned a couple of times in scripture. We know that he was an active part of the Sanhedrin. He was such an important rabbi at the time that when he died, this is what they wrote about him. They said, when Rabbi Gamaliel, the elder died, regard for the Torah, which is the Jewish law, ceased and purity and piety died. See, the rabbinic system of Judaism was that all these guys got together and they discussed what the Old Testament Torah said, what the words of the law said and what they meant and what the prophecy meant. And they studied all that scripture and they debated all that scripture and they came up with two traditions, one that was oral and one that was written down. And together they became what's known as the Jewish Talmud. This guy Gamaliel was an expert on all things and an influencer on all things and Saul studied under him. So it made perfect sense that in the moment when his life had just been changed by Jesus, that the first place that he would go would be back to the synagogue to find those influencers, to find those teachers, to find those rabbis, to find those prophets and say, hey guys, we've been getting it wrong. Let me tell you who Jesus is. So he goes to the synagogues and he begins to teach that Jesus is the son of God. And it says in verse 21, all those who heard him were astonished. Their minds are literally blown, open mouth gaze, astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among all those who call this name? And hasn't he come here to take us as prisoners to the chief priest? And it says, yet Saul grew. Growing, pursuing becoming, he grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. The goodness of God, the salvation from Jesus, the full benefit of forgiveness is available to us in an instant, in a moment. But who we are becoming in Christ is a lifelong, day by day, one minute, one moment at a time, process. I love how astonished and how freaked out and how mind blown all these guys were by Saul. 
And I sit back and I wonder how, how many people out there in the world are blown away by the life change in my life? How many of them are blown away by the life change in your life? How many people are shocked to see how different you are because of Jesus? How many people are astonished at the work that he's doing among us and the way that we're different from the world around us? I hope it's a constant state of the life we live that people are blown away because if they're not blown away by the Jesus in us, we may not be showing him quite enough. It says when he came to... um, This is Atwo in verse 23. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. The Saul learned of their plan. Day and night, they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket. This sounds like a a spy movie or a spy TV show, like, like espionage. I love it. They lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. You know, the people there didn't believe that the life change that had occurred in Saul could actually occur in somebody's life. And there's a nugget there that we take with us, a a truth that we begin to understand about God in our lives and his work in the world, because there will always be people around you. There will always be. There will always be people around you who doubt the life change that's in you. Always. There will always be people around you who doubt the life change that's in you. And oftentimes, this is what I found, maybe you found this too. Oftentimes, the people that doubt the life change in you the most are those who are closest to you. The ones who are the closest. So I grew up as a kid who was really, really picky and afraid to eat almost anything, especially if it was brand new. I'd never seen it before. I ate everything on a compartment plate because I wanted all of my food to stay in its completely divided proportion off setting. I didn't want any of my food to touch any of the other foods. People who said this sentence to me, it's okay, it's all going to the same place. I quickly and respectfully responded, it does not all have to get there at the same time. We do not want food to touch. And there were so many things that I wouldn't eat. My mother, who I love will typically be the first to say, I'm 41 years old. Well, you didn't eat that when you were little. Well, I've changed. I've grown up. Some of the taste buds have died and some of them have just expanded to where I actually like other things now. The people who are closest to you will often doubt the life change that's in you. And you know that because there will always be people around you who don't wanna believe that God is doing a good work in you. And this is ultimately what they're saying Yeah, I think God is good, but you being different, that's a little bit too good to be true. The idea that somebody might look at you and not believe that you could be in as hot of a pursuit of Jesus or as kind, as loving, as gentle as you are becoming in Jesus is ultimately somebody saying, yeah, I believe that Jesus can do a good work, but that's a little bit too much. Somehow or another, people doubting the life change in you just means that they're doubting the God who's working out that life change in you. And he can do anything. So don't let somebody's doubt in you be something that labels you because ultimately the God in you can do whatever he wants with you. He can change us. He wants to. And it is a lifelong process. You know, we all want the benefit of the doubt when it comes to what God's doing in us. We want the benefit of the doubt 100% of the time. And we want questions about our motivation 0% of the time. Yet we're willing to extend those to others in almost opposite percentages. 
Like, I want you to give me the benefit of the doubt 100% of the time, and I want you to question my motivation for the things that I think and the things that I feel and the things that I do 0% of the time. But when it comes to you, I'm going to question everything about you and question every motivation that you have all of the time. You don't believe me that that's the world that we exist and that we live in? Let me introduce you to my friend Facebook. We want 100% benefit of the doubt 100% of the time. We want questions about our motivations and our thoughts and our feelings and our perceptions 0% of the time, and yet we're willing to extend those to others in opposite percents. So he keeps going, and he came to Jerusalem. And in verse 26, he tried to join the disciples, the people who had been changed by Jesus, the people who had literally followed real-life Jesus, the people who had watched him die and saw him after he came back to life, the people that he called to go forward into the world and take his name to literally all nations. When he came to those disciples, they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. This problem, like almost every problem that we have, it's rooted in fear. They didn't want to accept him because they were afraid. Hatred rooted in fear is still hatred. Exclusion rooted in fear is still exclusion. I used to play a game with students in student ministry and I would get all the kids except for one to make this big circle. And I would say, okay, guys, form a circle and get tight shoulder to shoulder. You could never play that game right now because of COVID-19. Like literally all of the student ministry games have been taken from us. We'd say to all the students, hey, you guys form a big circle, get shoulder to shoulder and everybody's facing in. And we'd say to the one student that was over here, hey, do whatever you need to do to get in that circle. And that was the only instruction that they were given. Do whatever you need to do to get in that circle. And you know what? these kids over here in a circle would instinctively do as if they were given the instruction, they would do everything that they could to keep that kid out of the circle. It's human nature. You didn't tell them, hey guys, form a tight bond, keep him out. But what they heard was, if he's gonna get in, we're gonna do everything we can to stop him. Exclusion based on fear is still exclusion. Exclusion based on ignorance is still exclusion. Tradition rooted in fear, sin. Tradition rooted in exclusion, sin. We can put the fear label on something to make us feel better about ourselves, to say, well, you know, I wanted to do it, but I was just afraid. Because saying I wanted to do it, but I was just afraid feels a whole lot better than saying I wanted to do it, but I'm just mean. Or I wanted to do it, but I gave up. Saying I was afraid sounds better than I just didn't want to do it. Everything that we face in life, like so many problems, is ultimately rooted in fear, but it is not excused by fear. I want you to hear this morning a brief testimony from my good friend, George Mondera, he has been a worship leader at our campus for a couple of years now, and he's on the road doing other things and making songs. We highlight him on our Instagram stories and our Facebook pages so that you can go and download and listen to his music. And he's a great guy, and he moved here a couple of years ago to be a part of God's work here at Rolling Hills. And this week, because George is also a person of color, Pastor Jeff got to sit down with him and talk about the things that are happening um, just in the world. Um, and I want you to hear part of George's story today. 
George, thanks for sitting down with us today, and happy Father's Day to you. Thank you, man. Happy Father's Day to <laughs> you, Jeff. You. It's great. I love it. I love being a dad, you know. It's awesome. Uh, tell us about your family. Yeah, so uh, I have one wife. Yeah, Her name good. is Lucy, and, uh, and, I've got, we, and we've got two daughters, uh, Savannah, who's eight, and Summer, who's five. So tell us where you grew up, and then what brought you to the U.S.? I mean, so I was born in a country called Zimbabwe, yeah. you know, which is a, a country in the southern part of Africa. And um, I've got eight, uh, seven brothers, so the eight boys in our family. So I grew up in Zimbabwe. That's where I did my school. Then I finished up with that and then moved to South Africa. Spent four years in South Africa and then moved to the U.K., yeah. to Manchester, you know, uh, joined another band. It was music that took me over there. And uh, that's where I got to meet Lucy, got married. We've been married for 18 years. Uh, and then we lived in uh, the UK, you know, for almost 15 years, I'll say. And then we moved to Germany, you know, where we spent, uh, uh, you know, two and a half years and, and then made the transition to the US. This whole issue of race has got to be a big deal. It's always been a big deal in the United States, but even in the UK. And, and so tell me about your experience now, uh, being a person of color living here in America. What's that been like for you? You know, I mean, obviously where we live here in Williamson County and Franklin Thompson Station, you know, I'm a minority, yeah. you know? And so I, I feel some of the things um, that I've had to, uh, to deal with is, is just feeling stereotyped, I mean, stereotyped, you know, and, and being put in a box, you know. And so, you know, Lucy is, is white, oh, yeah. you know, she's British, and, you know, we, we were spending some time in Leap of, uh, Leapers Fork and uh, with the kids, and, and obviously, met, you know, I came across a bunch of guys who didn't, obviously, you could tell they didn't agree with our, our marriage, you know, and, and, you know, and we were approached and some things were said, and, and, you know, it was difficult because, you know, you're there with the kids and as a father, you're thinking, oh man, you know, how do I deal? You don't want something to escalate, but it's something that, you know, it's a reality of what stuff that's happening over here. What do you think is, uh, is at the heart of it? What do you think is at the heart of the issue uh, when you come down to it and you look at this? racism and these racial tensions what do you what do you think is coming from we've got to understand one thing that you know we are different yeah. you know we are different and so god said he made us in his image yeah you know and that's everything and so so when we you know when i judge someone you know because they're different you know i think that's a uh you know we kind of saying well god i don't really agree with your creation wow i don't love your creation you know you know, I'm doubting, you know, what you made. I don't like what you made. We got to go back to the beginning. We got to understand, educate ourselves, you know, about why this is happening. We, you know, we've got to educate ourselves and, and also then listen, you know, why is it happening? We have to continually have dialogue. Mm. You know, uh, you know, Dr. King said something really interesting. He says, you know, a lot of people, um, you know, end up hating each other because they fear each other. Wow. You know, and uh, they fear each other because they don't know each other. You know, they don't know each other because they don't have relationship with each other. A lot of bad things happen in the world, Jeff, because too many good people stay silent. Wow. So we need to speak out. And, um, and as a church, I feel like as well, we've got to, uh, you know, love requires us, uh, you know, to get out, of our, get out of our comfort zone. You know, we need to uh, adjust our position to change our perspective. What do, you, what do you say to your kids? How do you talk to them about this whole issue of race? I mean, you know, that's been hard because yeah. obviously uh, Savannah is at an age, you know, where um, uh, she, you know, she kind of understands a lot more what's going on. But we, I mean, we've had to almost even uh, had to talk about it because with Summer, mm -hmm. we actually had an experience in the school 
where there were kids who said, you know, didn't like, you know, uh, because of her color. But yeah, we just got to talk to our kids. I, I, you know, I just try and just confirm them that God loves them, you know, that they're just amazing and that, you know, we love them. Yeah. You know, so. Hey, as a Christ follower yeah. and, uh, and a dad yourself, you know, what do you hope for your kids or what do you hope for the world in the future? We need to come together continuously, you know, and fight for it. You know, it's not easy, but, um, you know, and, and so, you know, my prayer is, Lord, you know, just uh, let me be more like you. You know, Jesus loved people. He loved people, you know, and he went to where the people was, you know. And the Father is perfect, yeah. you know, and, and everything, he's, he's enough. Everything that we need is in him. So we, you know, we need to become more like him, mm-hmm. you know, and I, and I feel the more we all become more like him, you know, a lot of these things, you know, will get sorted out, I feel. That interview was actually really, really long, and we'll be posting the remainder of it online this week for you to watch it in its entirety. And George recognizes a couple of times in that interview um, that his perceptions about racism in this country are different being a person who came into it as opposed to a person who was raised in it. Um, But it's a perception that I can learn from um, and one that I need to. It should have been hard to move to this country um, to get a driver's license because, you know, we drive on a different side of the road. It should not have been hard to come here because of the way that he looks. It should be hard to come here because, you know, we're in the South and we talk funny. It should not be hard to come here because it's the South and we put up a barrier against people of color. The list of things about moving to another continent that are difficult is probably long. I've never moved to another continent, so I don't know for sure all the challenges that a person could face, but I do know that one of them should not be because he's black. Sin rooted in fear, still sin. Hate rooted in fear, still hate. Hate protected by tradition or history, still hate and still has no place in the life of the church. We know that racism in our country will not get better until racism in our churches gets better. We know that problems in our nation will not go away until the problems in our neighborhoods are resolved. And so what happens next in Saul's life is something that all of us need to hear and see and be a part of because when those disciples, the ones who should have known better in the moment, did not want to receive Saul coming into them, it says in verse 27, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and he moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. Verse 27, if I was an underliner in scripture right now, which I am, and I invite you to do the same, but Barnabas. Every single one of us needs a a Barnabas in their life. Everybody needs somebody on their side, somebody that has their back, somebody that's willing to listen and to believe and to trust and to go to bat for you. And if we're all gonna have a Barnabas in our life, it's because we're gonna be a Barnabas in someone's life. As important as it is for you to have someone in your corner, it is equally essential for you to be that for someone else. And here's the deal. All of my Barnabases can't be just like me. And all of the people to whom I am a Barnabas for cannot look just like me. 
Later on, Paul wrote, I mean, he wrote half the New Testament, so he wrote a lot of different passages of Scripture. One that's really famous, you hear it all the time, spoken out loud at weddings. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy. At the end of that, it says in the New American Standard, love believes all things, love bears all things. And I have to imagine that in that moment when he has a picture of somebody that's gonna bear with me and somebody that's gonna believe in me when no one else does, Paul's thinking about a Barnabas. Who do you believe in? And who are you willing to go to bat for? It says in verse 31, and we'll close it out today and finish back up with this chapter and the rest of Saul's life starting next week. And it says this, then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace, relative peace, because the Christians were still being persecuted. The Christians were still being pursued, but relative peace that can only come from the power of the Holy Spirit working in your life. They still had problems, and yet they were at peace. We will continue to have problems in this world, and yet we can be at peace. They had peace, and they were strengthened. It says, living in the fear of the Lord. That's a different kind of fear. It's a worship-filled kind of fear. And encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. Plethenu the word that you wrote down at the beginning, I don't know what definition that you came up with was. It was probably really, really interesting. And it might be so good that many of the people in the room would have voted for your definition. But the real definition is a Greek word that means multiplication. The church multiplied and it grew because the people in it grew in their faith in Jesus and their willingness to pursue him at all costs. The church multiplied, it increased and it was strengthened. That's our goal. That's what we'll do here. We know that our ability to grow in this community will be in proportion to the way we grow as individuals in it. So what we, what we understand is that the work that God wants to do in each and every one of us is a lifelong process that starts with the moment we receive Jesus and goes until the moment we see Jesus, and that the work he wants to do in us should astonish the people around us, even if it causes doubt and questions, should blow their minds to the point of seeing Christ in us. And that's the prayer that we pray, and it's the effort that we make today. Lord, would you be so active in our lives? changing us from the inside out, making us the kind of Barnabases that we need to be, making us the kind of Pauls that we need to be, making us the kind of believers that we need to be to take your truth, what the reality of your love is, what the reality of your hope is, what the reality of your peace is, not our made up definitions of any of those things, what the reality of your forgiveness is, what the reality of mercy is, what the reality of grace is, what the reality and the darkness of our sin actually is. Would you help us take that truth out into the world so that others can have their minds blown and see Jesus and experience his love and truth too. Father, we thank you for this day and for this chance to gather from our brothers and sisters in this room who are still wavering back and forth in, in every sense of the word of what it means to truly be your disciple. Father, I pray that you would call them to yourself today. Father, for my brothers and sisters in this room today who are still having so much trouble understanding that, that even the difficulty that they walk through in life is your effort to change them more into the image of your son, Jesus. 
Father, I pray that you would make us a people who just open-handedly accept and believe the work that you want to do in others because we openly accept and trust the work that you want to do in us. And God, we pray that as you transform our church and our community, you would transform the world around us to be a place of hope and a place of love, not for just us, but for everybody else too. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray, holy and perfect name that we ascribe our worth and our lives to. Amen. Thank <laughs> you.